Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. If you love Atlanta, you can invest in the big picture. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. I'm Erlon Woods. I'm Nigel Poor. We're the hosts and creators of Ear Hustle from PRX's Radiotopia. Ear Hustle is a show about life inside prison, but it's not your typical prison podcast. In this next season, we've got stories about the objects people keep inside their prison cells. About residents in a women's prison who say they want to stay there. And the most beautiful prison garden. Erlon, I will never forget it. Ear Hustle. Stories about life on the inside, told by those who live it. Find Ear Hustle wherever you get your podcasts. From WABE in Atlanta, welcome to this Wednesday edition of Closer Look. I'm Rose Scott. Coming up in a moment, DeKalb County is partnering with other agencies to provide more than 700 virtual internships this summer for teens and young adults. Young people will be able to earn a check. They'll be able to earn academic credit and a career development expertise. I'll be joined by DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman. Also, we'll find out the mission of the Agco Agricultural Foundation. It's a private foundation and their vision to prevent and relieve global hunger through agricultural development. Those conversations coming up in just a moment. But first, this from our WABE newsroom. It's been nearly a week since fuel operations were restored at the Alpharetta-based Colonial Pipeline. However, Metro Atlanta's gas shortage continues. About one-third of Georgia gas stations were lacking fuel as of yesterday afternoon. That's according to GasBuddy.com. And officials say that percentage continues to improve for gas stations across the southeast. But at this hour, reports are four out of every ten gas stations in the metro area are basically empty. In other news right now, in Fulton County, you still have time until 2 p.m. today to get vaccinated against COVID-19 at a few local public library branches. Now, according to state public health officials, vaccine doses will be available at the East Point, Adams Park, and South Fulton Library branches. Don't worry if you can't make it today. Doors will open at 11 a.m. tomorrow until 2 p.m. Officials say no appointments are necessary and a rotation of locations will be published weekly. The county says it's all meant to close the vaccination gap in communities across Fulton County. By the way, Georgia is still holding around a 30 percent full vaccination rate in the state. However, that's still among the lowest in the nation. This is Closer Look. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. As always, I'm Rose Scott. Last month, the youth unemployment rate was 11%. But pay attention to this. Last year at this time, it was 27.4%. One word tells the reason why. Pandemic. And according to the U.S. Department of Labor, youth unemployment refers to the share of the labor force, between the ages of 15 and 24, without work, but available for and seeking employment. Here in Georgia, State Labor Commissioner Mark Butler, as well as Governor Brian Kemp, say there is a worker shortage in the state. But what about work for teens and young adults? In DeKalb County, CEO Michael Thurman and the Board of Commissioners are hosting the 2021 DeKalb Virtual Career Academy. This is the county's fifth annual summer jobs program run by WorkSource DeKalb. Joining me now with more, DeKalb County CEO, Michael Thurman. CEO Thurman, welcome. Delighted to be with you. Let me ask you this. Before we dig into the Virtual Career Academy, I do want to get your thoughts now that the CDC is recommending that folks can 
who are fully vaccinated can now ditch the mask and go about as business as usual. Uh, any concerns for you and your residents in DeKalb County? Absolutely. We'll remain vigilant. Uh, we were encouraged by the recent guidance from CDC. Uh, I announced earlier this week that we'll be reopening our parks uh, for outdoor activities on Saturday, uh, 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 May 21st. Mm -hmm. So we're moving in the right direction, but it's way too early uh, to just drop all of our guards and to go back to business as usual. The challenge is that across the state of Georgia right now, about 70% of the population is not yet vaccinated. Mm -hmm. In DeKalb County, what is your suggestion for the cities in terms of mask guidelines? Well, I think the cities that have decided to maintain their mask ordinances are being cautious and doing the right thing. Uh, in the unincorporated areas, uh, our ordinance is still in place. Uh, the challenge is you don't know who's vaccinated and who's not. And so you have to be careful to protect yourself, your family, and your loved ones. You heard me mention Labor Commissioner Mark Butler and the governor both citing a shortage of workers for some businesses, and thus the state will end that extra $300 in extra federal unemployment benefits next month. I'm curious, what do you make of that? Do you support that decision? Well, as a former Labor Commissioner, I'm very familiar with the publicly financed labor exchange. Mm -hmm. uh, you were probably in middle school, but I was labor commissioner from 1998 to 2010. And just that experience. I was not in middle school. In fact, you know, good and well, <laughs> you were one of my first interviews when I moved to this city. I'm starting that. <laughs> no, you were in middle school. I know you were in middle school, <laughs> but you may recall your parents probably remember when I was labor commissioner back in the uh, late 90s and early teens, early 2000s. But look, out of 230,000 Georgians, no one can say that all 230,000 unemployed Georgians are not looking for work or they're lazy or they've somehow just become addicted to a $300 a week unemployment insurance check. Mm -hmm. Now, are there some people? Absolutely. But even those few don't represent the majority. The other thing I'd like to say is that uh, in order to find a job, and I know you may have looked for a job, you know, some point in your life. I know you have. That's not an overnight proposition. You know, you have to go. You have to find a job, submit a resume, go through an interviewing process. It's a process that has to take place. And even in the best of times, the job search process is on average a four to five week proposition. So what I would like to see, number one, let's reopen all the labor offices in the state. The primary resource that Georgians use to find jobs is the Georgia Department of Labor. Uh, unfortunately, the offices have been closed uh, for over a year now. And consequently, people who want job search assistance really have very few options at this point. And speaking of options, once again, DeKalb County will be able to help a lot of young folks between the ages of 15 and 24 with an internship. Uh, you all had 750 placements available First of all, are all those spots filled? Yes, we had approximately 3,000 applicants for those 750 slots. Mm. Uh, to me, that's an indication of people want to work. Uh, when you have 3,000 uh, young people between the ages of 14 and 24 apply for jobs, uh, it's very positive in that that's an indication of people are focused and, 
and ambitious and they want to earn income. Unfortunately, we only have 750 positions and they are all filled at this point in time. And once again, this is all virtual. Now, the decision to be virtual, you all had to make that earlier in the year, not knowing how much progress will be made in regard to the pandemic. So it will be virtual. Absolutely. And, you know, actually, by being virtual, uh, when we started the initiative some five years ago, on average, we were serving about 350 to 400 uh, young people each summer. By transitioning to virtual, we are able to double the number of young people who can work, uh, learn and earn, as we say, during the summer in the camp. So even in the midst of pandemics, you, if you're innovative and creative, rather than restricting, you can actually expand opportunities for the people you serve, which is exactly what the Career Academy has done. And CEO Thurman, those who are fortunate enough to make it this round to get in the program, did the applicant have to indicate an area of interest and did you all match them with a particular business or company? Well, it's virtual, so they'll be, and just think about it now, uh, even your job in radio, whoever thought that, you know, radio and TV reporters and announcers, people like yourself, commentators, would be working virtually and not in the studio a significant percentage of time. So what we are doing is preparing the next generation for employment opportunities that a significant number of those opportunities will be virtual. Uh, working in a remote location, working from home. So all of these uh, internships are actually virtual employment opportunities that they will access uh, with digital devices from wherever they uh, log on. So that's what's different about this. But because of the pandemic, that uh, spurred uh, the, uh, the transformation of the workplace. And there are many jobs that were uh, required a physical presence in a building that's gone and is not coming back even after the pandemic resides. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, and we're talking about this summer's DeKalb Virtual Career Academy, which will place 750 young folks between the ages of 15 and 24 with a valuable work experience. CEO Thurman, this program was developed not just to provide an internship opportunity for these young folks, but also as a as a pathway in other areas. Oh, absolutely. You can earn academic credit in the DeKalb Public School District. And let me just say that this would not be possible but for the partnership between the DeKalb County government, the DeKalb County School District, and Georgia Piedmont Technical College. And I just want to uh, sound out uh, the Superintendent Watson Harris, as well as President Holston at the Technical College for being partners uh, in this effort with the cab and work source, uh, Ms. Teresa Austin Givens. So all of these are people working together to make these career opportunities available. Young people will be able to earn a check. They'll be able to earn academic credit and a career development uh, expertise. This is the fifth year of the program. What do you say about its success? Well, this is of all the things we do, all of our programs and services that we provide, this is the one that I value the most. This is the one that makes me happiest. Of all the things I do, I have an opportunity to participate in in DeKalb County. This is the one that I think is really the down payment on the future of DeKalb County, our state and nation. So it's been extremely successful. We served over 3,000 young people, and the response from parents, 
and educators and students has just been phenomenal over the years. I got an email from one of my first interns from the first year. Uh, she's graduated from the University of Georgia this year with straight A's, uh, mm. my first intern five years ago. Wow. When you got that email, what went through your mind? It was just, I was delighted. I'm happy. Uh, it was a return on investment that you can't really uh, put a value on. And it's what this is all about. Someone, and, and when I was 14 years old, I was in a summer uh, employment program for disadvantaged kids over in Athens, Georgia. I remember getting my first check uh, for two weeks' work. It was like $89.43. The only reason I know is that I saved that first paid stub. I have it in my trophy cabinet uh, <laughs> over in Athens. It meant just that much to me to get a check with my name typed on it and with taxes taken out. It was a beautiful thing. And the one thing about a check, when you earn one, you want another one, or you want one larger than the previous one. And it set me on a path, uh, I think, that helped to, uh, you know, shape my career and shape my life, really. I understand that feeling. Nothing like that first paycheck you get with your name on it. Mine what was, was your first old... job? What was your first job, Ms. Scott? What, did you, what was your first job? I was a camp counselor, and I was 15 years old. And I think the check was $116 and I took the whole family out to dinner. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. That's I was, great. That's you know, great. you know, where we went Kentucky fried chicken. <laughs> oh, you, you going high, high class. You went well, back then. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's a great feeling. It, it really is. And so finally, as we wrap up, this internship runs for five weeks, uh, looking into the future when we get to the other side of this pandemic and how do you see DeKalb County being able to, well, let me back up. Finally, as, as we end CEO Thurman, I want to ask you about lessons learned for you throughout this pandemic and, and leadership of one of the state's largest counties here in Georgia. Uh, what's been your takeaway? When dealing with a novel crisis, uh, COVID is a novel virus. We're facing a novel pandemic. Don't totally rely on your experience. Novel crises require novel solutions in order to solve problems. So that's been my lesson. Uh, oftentimes, the most experienced person is the person who may be in the best position uh, to solve or lead in a crisis. But if it's a unique novel crisis, you need people who can innovate, who can think strategically, and think creatively even inside and outside the box. That being said, CEO Michael Thurman, how long do you want to stay in politics after this term of CEO of DeKalb County is, is done? You've been in politics for a long time. A long time. Well, you know, I can't run for re-election, and I'm, I'm proud and appreciative that DeKalb voters uh, re-elected me to a second term. I'm in my last term in DeKalb County, mm -hmm. and uh, it's been a joy. It's been a blessing to be the CEO in the midst of this crisis. You know, what you really want to do from a leadership perspective is that in the, at a moment of great crisis and challenge, uh, that's where you want to be. You want to be able to go and stand in the gap in order to serve and to create. I was a little late for this call because I was talking, just got a grant. Uh, there's an issue with vaccine hesitancy in the cab and across this nation. So we're trying to create some innovative strategies to encourage more people to get vaccinated. So that's a challenge, but then it creates an opportunity. 
Is this your last elected position? <laughs> you know, never say no. You know, every politician believe they got one more race in them. I got one more in me, you know. I like to tell people at this point in time, uh, I'm in the fourth quarter of my career. Uh, you know, I've served nearly four decades in various capacities. But, Rose, you're, you're a sports fan, so I use this analogy. I got two minutes left on the clock. It's the fourth quarter, but I still got three timeouts, so this might take a while to get me off the field. <laughs> All right, I feel you. All right, I feel you. Just, just, just hand the ball to Michael Thurman. Yeah, give me the ball. I will. I, I, I'm the kind of person I want the ball with three seconds on the clock. I love it, and I, I'm not necessarily that I'm going to take the shot, but I got to get it to the person who's open in the best position. Uh, to help us win. So that's what I do. But before I go, Ms. Rose, I want to make some news that will be announced next week about the summer employment program. Each intern is scheduled to receive $9 an hour, right? Mm -hmm. So next week, we're going to announce that we're going to increase the hourly rate to $10 per hour. That, that's good news. That's welcome news. You and I both know. That's breaking news. Yeah. That's breaking news. That is. And you and I both know every little bit helps. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And these young people deserve it. And look, some kids are earning money for fun. Some are go to the amusement park or movies or whatever. But the large percentage of our kids are earning money to help their parents uh, pay rent and mortgages and to purchase food. So we see summer employment as something to help us, you know, join maybe some clothes for school. But many of our interns are actually working uh, to help uh, their families. Uh, survive during this crisis. DeKalb County CEO Michael Thurman, as always, I appreciate you taking the time. Good conversation. We've had so many of these over the years. Bro, you do such a great job on WABE, but not only do you impart information, but you also inspire. And we're very proud of you and very proud of WABE. Well, thank you so much. We always appreciate that. Support for WABE comes from the Community Foundation for Greater Atlanta. You can go beyond giving to impact. Learn more at cfgreateratlanta.org. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. The AGCO Agricultural Foundation, or AAF, is linked to the AGCO Corporation, located in Duluth, Georgia. Now, the foundation, it's a private foundation, and their vision is to prevent and relieve global hunger through agricultural development. But since the COVID-19 pandemic, the foundation has shifted its mission a little one of their partnerships is right here in the region. It's the Global Growers Network. And in just a moment, you'll hear about efforts to help renovate the Clarkston International Garden and why that is so important. Joining me now with more about this project and the overall mission 
of the Agco Agriculture Foundation and the Global Growers Network is Meti Rishinagin, board member and the director of the Agco Agriculture Foundation. Meti, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you for having me, Rose. Let's start with the backstory of Agco, the foundation. You all are still relatively new in terms of the philanthropic landscape. Yeah, so as a corporation, we were founded in 1990 and we're headquartered in Duluth, uh, Georgia, just outside of Atlanta. Um, the Echo Corporation is a global leader in the design, manufacturing, and distribution of agricultural machinery and precision ag technology. Um, we have a purpose uh, for the corporation, which is farmer focused solutions to sustainably feed our world. So basically working towards food security. And based on that purpose, we launched the Echo Agriculture Foundation in 2018 with a vision to holistically uh, approach the prevention and relief of hunger. So through impact-driven initiatives, strategic partnerships, and grant funding, our foundation is working with marginalized farming communities, supporting food security and promoting sustainable agricultural development. So we've been doing that since 2018 with the foundation, but I would say with the corporation, we've been working towards food security with our purpose, vision, and mission as well. And this is food security on a global scale. Correct. Yes. Um, we work globally. Um, we work with nonprofit organizations locally because we believe they have a footprint on the ground. Um, they are um, established in areas where we are not located. So we work globally, regionally and locally around the globe. And just within a few years that you all have been operating as a foundation, tell me about one of the projects you all are involved in. Uh, one great example, I would say, is a community or refugee-driven farming project that we have in partnership with the Kenya Red Cross Society in Dadaab, which is one of Africa's biggest refugee camps at the border of Somalia. So um, this area is ecologically fragile and affected by multiple hazards. So our project at the refugee camp aims to enhance community resilience and strengthen their adaptation capacity to climate change through climate smart agricultural practices. So we basically um, boost their food production, enhance food access and nutrition for those refugees. Um, we have uh, supported over 6,000 households in the refugee camp. The refugee camp still has over 200,000 inhabitants at the moment. Um, and we're also providing mechanization and farming practices, um, creating employment opportunities for those refugee farmers as well as the host community. So I would say that Dada project is one example of how we make an impact globally. And pre-pandemic, Meti, how often were you able to travel and see these initiatives and programs up front? Quite frequently. Um, I think it's very important to talk with people on the ground, even though we have our nonprofits on the ground that have the expertise and work with the beneficiaries directly. Since we take a very farmer-centric approach, um, I like to travel to those locations and talk to those farmers and refugees directly. Um, so I've done that quite frequently before the pandemic. Um, now it's been almost two years that I have, haven't traveled. So I look forward to hopefully visiting some of these locations again this year. It's of course a little bit different with the um, project that we have in Atlanta with Global Growers Network. Mm -hmm. I was able to go there in April on a couple of occasions. And I wanna talk about these five key focus areas because one of them is advancement of quality education in agriculture. So is the goal here to also ensure the regions you're working in that the communities are able to sustain this farming knowledge and in a sense become self-sufficient. Yeah, you are 100% right. We want to make them self-sufficient. So we want to make sure that even when we move out of the project, 
um, depending on the duration of the project, that they are as self-sufficient in farming as they can be. So in all of our projects, we build agricultural infrastructure around the projects, which include training and education. Um, and we also separately actually um, are just launching next week, um, but I can already talk about it a little bit, an educational and agribusiness qualification program also in Africa, um, where we are funding uh, 20 students to participate in an agribusiness program for one year. Mm -hmm. And we've partnered with two of the leading uh, universities in the UK, as well as in South Africa. Um, and we are providing full-time education to 20 students who will then move on into the agricultural space. And that's really important to us because in some, you know, agriculture education is not really sexy. It's not a career that many um, want to pursue. So especially in Africa, we have so much arable land available, but only less than 2% of students actually pursue a degree in agriculture. So it's very important for us to provide those opportunities to students. And Meti, how important is it also that when you're working with these partners, particularly when you're going into a region or a township or a village or, or what have you, that you have folks who are from that community who are also part of the teaching and also part of the education? Yeah, we have uh, an approach of the uh, what we call teach the teacher or train the trainer um, in a lot of these communities. Um, so I would say that the Africa Agribusiness Qualification Program that we have is actually a great example because we had the first cohort in 2019. They graduated last year and they have actually continued to train a lot of um, people in our projects. So I would say that um, the train the trainer approach is definitely important to us in those in those locations. And so then last year, Meti, the pandemic, and I imagine like so many other nonprofits that are working on a global level, you all had to first pause and reassess how you were going to continue your work and then maybe have to shift in some form or fashion. What did you all have to do immediately when you realized that once, not only just because of traveling, but also these other issues with the pandemic that might've also been impacting these regions, what did you all do at ACHO? Yeah, so um, at the start of the pandemic, ECHO and the ECHO Agriculture Foundation, I would say, played a significant role in the humanitarian relief and responding, especially when it comes to ensuring food security and nutrition access for vulnerable communities impacted by the pandemic are met. So our foundation immediately in early 2020 established a COVID-19 aid program with an initial grant of half a million US dollars, um, providing funding to 13 local nonprofit organizations, literally around the world. So we partnered with organizations like Feeding America in the US, we partnered with nonprofits in South America, India, Africa, uh, all over the world. And in addition to that, we also donated 100,000 to the United Nations World Food Program for their global emergency response and hosted a fundraising match program to provide meals for hungry children. So we donated over 200,000 meals um, to those children and reached over 50,000 vulnerable communities across the globe. And the ACO Agriculture Foundation, as I mentioned coming into this segment, you all are connected to ACO, the corporation, is that your primary funding? Do you all also go out and seek funding from other entities? 
Um, we get the main endowment from the Echo Corporation on an annual basis, but we were um, lucky enough to get a few um, donations in from distributors or partners um, that we met on uh, different occasions who actually thought that um, some of our projects were impactful enough to make a donation to our foundation. But the main endowment is coming from the Echo Corporation. What's your annual operating budget? It's a, a one-digit million-dollar endowment that we're getting. Hmm. If you're just joining us, I'm in conversation with Metty Rieschenhagen. She's the board member and the director of the Agco Agriculture Foundation. And we're talking about one of their partnerships with the Global Growers Network and how the foundation overall works to prevent and relieve global hunger through agricultural development. Let's shift now and talk about the Global Growers Network. Explain that to our listeners. Yeah, definitely. Um, beyond, I would say, um, the COVID-19 aid support, um, we were also, uh, you know, paying attention to how Atlanta communities were hit by the pandemic. So as ways of getting closer to our local Atlanta communities and making an, an impact on those communities, we partnered with the Global Growers Network in 2019 to expand the flagship agricultural learning center in Clarkson also called the Clarkson International Garden. Mm -hmm. So our foundation partnered with Global Growers and funded close to $50,000 to assist the marginalized growers in the Clarkson community with an ecosystem of support to grow healthy food for themselves and their families to meet nutritional demands in metro Atlanta communities. Um, So through that partnership, we create a platform for enhancing capacity building and skill development in farming Most of these refugee farmers actually come from a farming background based on the country of their origin. So it's basically a win-win situation, I would say, where we teach them some best practices on how to farm and grow crops in the Atlanta region. They also teach us what kind of crops they grow in their countries and what kind of best practices they have from their locations. Um, The Clarkson International Garden now has a, a new ecological design that Mm -hmm. promotes biodiversity and future diverse crops and production techniques. Um, So it's basically a hub for those refugees um, in the Atlanta community. And I think Clarkson is one of the most diverse square miles in the nation um, to come together and connect them to equitable food systems, educational opportunities and skill development. You told me you had an opportunity to go to Clarkson and visit this garden, this international garden. What did you see? It was great, especially talking to the farmers directly. I saw that, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunity to be, like we talked about it earlier, be self-sufficient when it comes to nutrition and food security. So um, beyond the funding that we had, we actually decided to go out and send a group of two uh, on two days, uh, uh, two groups out on April 15th and April 22nd, which was uh, Earth Day event. And I think the, the themed Uh, Earth Day was Restore Our Earth, Um, and we sent out two ECHO groups, one from our Diversity and Inclusion Program at ECHO in Duluth and one from our ECHO Black Employee Network in Duluth, and they volunteered on the ground. So um, I think it was great for them to get their hands dirty and boots on the ground to help them make a true impact in, in a local community in Atlanta. And are there other initiatives that you all are funding or being a part of here in in either in the Atlanta area or even in Georgia? Um, 
I would say we have one project coming up in North America, which we launched on Monday. Um, it's actually a, a partnership towards animal welfare. So it's a, it's a different kind of approach. Um, we partnered with an organization called Global Animal Partnership, one of the largest animal welfare standards and labeling organizations in North America. So with this new animal welfare project, we um, basically try to strengthen animal welfare practices and certifications um, for production processes and building local networks for smallholder farmers. So for emerging and smallholder farmers in North America. Um, that's a project that we are launching in the North America region, which I'm really sure will also hit uh, Georgia's uh, small scale farmers. In fact, one of those five key focus areas that we talked about earlier is the treatment of animals across what you all call the value chain. Correct. And we call that animal welfare. So we are paying attention to uh, an increase in demand for protein, especially for poultry, um, how we can also ensure that our animals are treated fairly um, within the processes of production, within the supply and value chains. And Metti, this being a relatively new philanthropic endeavor for you all in terms of you, you all launching in 2018, how do you sum up the impact you all have been able to have not just obviously here in Clarkston, but in those areas around the world that you're working in? I would say that our foundation is passionate about transforming lives and achieving zero hunger, ensuring that we don't leave anybody behind. We have a specific purpose with our corporation. We are a separate entity, like you mentioned earlier, but we are still attached to the corporation. Everything we do is going towards food security. So we actually uh, like to, um, to to our impact-driven initiatives, transform the lives of the most marginalized farmers, the most, uh, you know, the smallest farmer, emerging farmers, um, and, and their communities that they are trying to feed. So we are basically going beyond our regular customer base and beyond the target group that we have with the corporation. And finally, Metti, is there a region somewhere that you all are desperately trying to get into, but for a number of other reasons, you can't? I think one of the reasons why we started the project in Dadaab at the border of Somalia is because we couldn't get into Somalia. It's a very difficult situation on the ground for um, safety and security reasons for our staff. Um, looking at the pandemic and the most recent developments, we are particularly looking at India, um, which is facing severe, severe health crisis and economic fallouts. Mm -hmm. So during the COVID-19 aid relief work that we want to do this year, we're actually targeting nonprofits in India, talking to them as we speak right now to see how we can, can move in, in, in those areas and make an impact and help with food security on, on, on the ground. Meti Rieschenhagen, board member and director of the ACO Agriculture Foundation. Thank you so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Good conversation. Thank you very much, Rose. This is Closer Look here on 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. There were a lot of graduations this past weekend, and unlike this time last year, the ceremonies were live, not virtual. Although some of the commencement speakers were virtual, for this year's college graduates, it was the familiar scene of walking across the stage, donning the cap and gown, and of course the cap toss amid the camera shots and cell phone videos being taken. 
Agnes Scott College had commencements not only for the class of 2021, but the class of 2020. And for Christine C.J. Montgomery, it was welcomed, and it meant she had an opportunity to address her fellow 2020 graduates. As Closer Look's graduates' profiles continue, Christine will call her C.J. now for the rest of this interview. Montgomery joins me. C.J., congratulations, and thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me. You know, a while back in one of our conversations, your president, Leo Kadia Zach, talked about how difficult it was to cancel last year's in-person commencement. When you heard that, what were your emotions? Oh, my goodness. I think I was just kind of heartbroken. I was just looking forward to finally closing that chapter and seeing all my friends again. Uh, so getting that email was just and having to push it out to my class, I think, was even harder because I got the news first as president. Um, and then being prepared for all the emails that were coming after, were, it was just a lot. <laughs> what did you hear in those emails? Were people like, CJ, is there anything you can do? Can you make or change your mind? <laughs> oh, definitely. A lot of people were like, well, can we just like, can we just come back one more time? Can we have like a little celebration? Can we do something? And I was like, y'all, we'll see what we can do, but it's not, it's not looking too hot. Um, <laughs> so they, they were definitely like, pushing me I it was it went from email to like me stop I was like I'm gonna pause from emails y'all I need a mental like I need to regroup and process and so then my dms were going wild so it was hard and when you found out that you know what we are going to have a commencement ceremony for 2020 although we'll be in 2021 and you would still get to address your your fellow classmates I imagine your emotions were different so yeah so I actually funny story. So like I actually found out through one of my classmates. So I had completely disconnected. I was like, you know what, y'all, I need to close this because it was just starting to eat at me. Everybody was like, oh, you'll get to walk eventually. And so I disconnected. And one of my friends was like, have you heard the news? And I was like, wait, what's going on? (laughs) And they were like, we're going to get a graduation. And I was like, wait, what? And so I finally logged back and into my email and I had like email after email from admin saying CJ like we're trying to get in contact with you we need your alum email address and I was like okay y'all so it's happening y'all it's happening good thing you didn't leave the state I know I know I'm still here in Atlanta so really easy to get back to campus for me you majored in Africana studies with a minor in education. Why this path? So I actually, I'm a first gen um, college student. So I had no idea, uh, full transparency, what a major or a minor was. Um, there were a lot of people at my high school who were having those conversations and my teachers kind of assumed that we knew, but I just kind of nodded my head in the background going, oh, okay. <laughs> I don't know what you're talking about. Um, and so I knew that I had a passion for learning about black culture, Um, not even just confined to the United States, but globally. Um, And so I was just like, let me, let me see what this is about. So I took a few classes. I knew that I really liked history. So it was a way to intertwine both of my passions. Um, And the education piece was something I knew. I knew that at some point I wanted to be in the education sector. And so it just kind of fell into place that Agnes Scott had the Africana studies major and that education minor just with the liberal arts Um, focus made them just weave together beautifully. You have an interest in terms of also equity in all of this too in education. Oh, for sure. So a lot of my research, um, the beautiful thing about Agnes Scott with that liberal arts focus, um, a lot of our finals and things can be tailored to our Mm interests. So I talked a lot about educational inequity 
specifically targeting um, African-American and black and brown students, um, just looking globally. And then with my senior um, seminar, looking closely at educational inequity within the United States. And so just trying to figure out how to bridge that gap, because there's a lot of unlearning that needs to be done for the way that we're teaching black and brown youth that's not happening in the way that it should. You mentioned, CJ, you were a first-generation college graduate. Uh, what has this meant to Tell me about your parents first. So um, so my mom is beyond thrilled. Um, so actually, I kind of talked about this in my commencement speech. My dad actually passed in November. Mm-hmm. So he would have been alive for our original commencement day, which for me, it was a big milestone to kind of finally take that walk and just kind of honor him because um, he was really one of my biggest champions for pushing me to just go as far as I could go. Um, and so it was really just amazing to see, just to finally be able to take that walk for both of my parents who, you know, life threw obstacles at them. And so they, they didn't go to college. And so they pushed me always to keep education first, um, no matter what that looks like. They didn't understand the paperwork, but they always tried to find people around me that could, you know, help me figure out how to fill out the FAFSA or how to do these college applications. Um, all these different programs, anything that came up in the news, mom was like, have you seen this? My dad would be like, you know what they're talking about? And so I would be like the mediator to explain these things um, to try to, to get the connections I needed to get to college because that was that was a non-negotiable for them. I understand that about being non-negotiable <laughs> for your parents. In addressing the class of 2020, what was the message you really wanted to get across to them? I think I wanted to push them to see that your degree, while it is so beautiful, um, and while so many people work so hard, it does not define your entire existence. Your productivity does not define who you are as a human. The fact that you have breath in your lungs is enough for you to be loved. And anybody who thinks different, oh well. Value yourself, love yourself, um, embrace who you are. Even if you never walk another stage, you never get another certificate, another job promotion, you're beautiful and you're appreciated and valued just for being here. And when you think back to CJ freshman year to now and being at Agnes Scott College, what has that meant to you these years? Ooh, confidence. <laughs> I don't think, uh, Rose, I don't think I would be having this conversation with you first year. I don't think anybody first year knew who CJ was. Um, I hid in my dorm. I didn't want to go anywhere. Um, and then I just started to think like, this is, there's so many things that are bigger than me. Um, and Agnes Scott handed me so many tools. Um, the LDR 101 about the power of the voice. Um, I took a class on um, just fake news. And so there were a lot of things that I was like, oh, I can rewrite that. I can figure this out. Um, and just, <laughs> I just started to get more vocal and people were like, oh, snap. And so I was like, okay, let me just, this is fun. I like speaking up and advocating for myself. And so from there, it was just, opportunity after opportunity and figuring out, well, how do I get to where that person is? And Mm -hmm. literally people at Agnes were like, oh, you want to get there? Here, like, here's how you do it. And it was just, from there, it was just literally the sky became a barrier. Like people say the sky is the limit. And Agnes Scott was like, nah, the sky is in your way. You got to keep going. (laughs) Well, on that note, what's next for you as this new chapter unfolds? Well, right now I'm currently a kindergarten teaching resident at Kipsel Primary School. Um, and then next year, I just actually accepted an offer to be lead math teacher in first grade. 
So I'll be transitioning onto first grade, um, same school. But I'm also enrolled in Relay Graduate School of Education, getting my master's in teaching. Um, I don't know. Part of me is like, maybe I'll keep going after that. We'll see what happens. But um, it's just any way that I can continue to focus on educational equity um, for students who may have similar stories to me and just didn't have the information or the exposure. That's just, that's only, that's my only focus right now. I don't want to change the world. I just want to change little minds one person at a time. That's not a bad approach. <laughs> Speaking of little minds, I got to ask, what have you learned from those kindergartners? Because I know you have. Oh my goodness. <laughs> um, I have learned that they are very observant. Mm -hmm. <laughs> But I've also learned, I think they were the inspiration for my speech, to be completely honest. We started off this year on Zoom, and when we got back into the building in May or in March, um, they were just so grateful to just be in the same space with me. And as a first-year teacher, I was making all kinds of mistakes, and they would just say, it's okay, Miss Montgomery, we love you. Or, And I was just <laughs> like, whoa, like, you don't, you see me as more than productivity. You see me as if I come in here, my makeup's not done. I, I look all kinds of wacky. They still are like, you look beautiful. Or, you know, you're, you're so smart. Or they would, they would affirm me. And it's like, you know what, even if I don't have this lesson plan fully fleshed, or it goes completely left, you guys see me as, as a human. And so they have taught me the value of just being human and it's okay to make mistakes. Uh, the, we talk about Bob Ross all the time and happy little accidents yes. in our class. And we just make beautiful, beautiful little accidents in our, in our kindergarten room. Christine C.J. Montgomery, class of 2020 for Agnes Scott. C.J., best of luck to you. Thank you so much for taking the time. And uh, first grade is good luck to you. <laughs> thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. And Closer Look continues now here on 90.1 WABE. I'm Rose Scott. Perhaps the message on Lake Winnie's website says it all. Come on, get happy. And while that may also remind you of the old classic TV show, The Partridge Family, Happy in this case is an amusement park located in Rossville, Georgia, just south of Chattanooga, Tennessee. Now, Lake Winnie opened back in 1925, but let's fast forward to 2020. And like many entertainment and theme parks in the nation, Lake Winnie had to put the roller coasters and other rides on pause for some time and even had to cancel its annual Halloween festivities. But park officials are hoping to have a full summer. And joining me now with more is Tally Green. She's the Director of Advertising, Public Relations and Operations for Lake Winnie Amusement Park. Tally, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Rose. Glad to be here. Let's begin here. Pre-pandemic, what was a typical number of your annual visitors to Lake Winnie? Well, pre-pandemic, um, um, 2020 kind of put the hold on all that. Um, we had a very short season. Um, we opened our water park first and then some amusement rides as mandated by the Georgia governor's restrictions mm -hmm. and um, capacity limits. However, our motto this year in 2021, which is our 96th season, is the fun is back. Mm -hmm. um, well, we definitely experienced a decline due to um, 
capacity limits and social distancing. And um, just like many, many businesses across the nation, it, it was unclear whether outings were actually safe or not. So it did affect our business, but we are back stronger than ever. We opened May 8th, and we're looking for a fantastic summer for our guests in the tri-state area of Georgia, Tennessee, Mm -hmm. Alabama, and actually North Carolina as well, as including visitors to the greater Chattanooga area from across the nation. What about your employees? How many do you all typically employ, let's say, during the peak season? During the peak season, we have about 250 employees throughout the park. That ranges from ride operators to food services, game attendants, lifeguards. Uh, Speaking of lifeguards, our water park, Sokia, Mm -hmm which is kind of a play on our name of Winnipesoka, mm-hmm. um, opens May 29th. Um, and we'll have about 100 lifeguards at the ready for um, safe and clean fun in our water park. Now, will you all limit the number of park visitors, or is it you want to really return to your normal uh, operations here? We're still in a pandemic, so what's that going to look like? Well, um, although we're still in a pandemic, um, the governor of Georgia has lifted mandates such as masks Mm -hmm. being required and social distancing, as well as capacity limits. So we're hearing some sighs of relief by our guests that the park is once again open at full capacity and the park is continuing to provide wholesome family entertainment during our 96 seasons. It's really back to a bit of normalcy that everyone is um, so excited about. So I want to be clear, Tally, you all will not require masks for park visitors and or staff? Um, That is correct. At the present time, our food service staff is still wearing masks, um, just as a precaution, not as a mandate. Mm -hmm. Um, But again, our capacity levels have been lifted. There are no restrictions as far as how many people can enjoy the amusement park or water park. Mm. And um, those um, social distancing restrictions have been lifted by the state as well. So um, during the pandemic and after, we, um, again, always go by um, what is mandated by the mm-hmm. by the state? Are you all encouraging staff to be fully vaccinated, or, or are you encouraging them to get vaccinated? We are encouraging them to get um, vaccinated, mm-hmm. um, and we we hope our guests are getting vaccinated. Also, it's just um, as so many people across the country feel, it's it's the right thing to do mm-hmm. for everyone's health and safety. Um, And we're so pleased to hear as the numbers across the nation increase on those total vaccination numbers. As a spokesperson for the amusement park, are operators, the owners, do they have any concerns? Are they also paying attention that if we see an increase in new cases, uh, whether in Georgia or throughout the nation, uh, could there be any reason why operators of the park would maybe reverse and and implement the social distancing and mask wearing? Um, We 
fully subscribe to any mandate that mm-hmm. the governor of Georgia may issue. We keep abreast of his mandates and any governances he may place upon different types of businesses. However, we are an outdoor amusement park. There's no indoor seating for food service. Everything is wide open in the fresh air. So at this time, we we don't have any restrictions in place per the governor. And as we wrap up, Tally, just how excited are you all to have visitors back? Well, we're so excited to be open for our returning guests, our new guests, our season pass holders. It's just time to bring the family and have that fun experience at Lake Quinnipiasoka and Sokia Water Park. Tally Green is Director of Advertising, Public Relations, and Operations for Lake Winnie, the amusement park in Rossville, Georgia, just outside of Chattanooga. The park is open. Tally, thank you so much for taking the time. You all have a great summer. Be safe. Thank you so much. Everybody sing. That's it for this edition of Closer Look. A reminder to send us your feedback on all the conversations and features you hear. Drop me an email to rose at wabe.org. And if you missed any of today's show, find the entire program online, wabe.org slash closer look. And of course, you can listen to Closer Look weeknights at 7 p.m. As well as in our podcast, subscribe to Closer Look wherever you like. Stay tuned to 90.1 WABE, Atlanta's choice for NPR. I'm Rose Scott. We'll make you happy. We'll make you happy. We'll make you happy. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The Gold Dome Scramble podcast is now plugged in, a WABE politics podcast. New name, same on-the-ground reporting from us, WABE politics reporters Sam Greenglass and Raul Bally. We'll cover local, state, and national politics as we talk to politicians and voters to break down each week's biggest headlines. New episodes drop on Fridays. Listen and subscribe at WABE.org or your favorite podcast platform. WABE.